Jim and Lois Doyle are really, really wonderful folks. And Lois submitted the verse, which as part of our series, Super Duper Bible Verses, we're going to make the focus of our attention tonight. And the verse that Lois submitted is this one, uh, 1 Samuel chapter uh, 12, verse 24. Look what it says. Wonderful. Only fear the Lord. We'll talk about that. And serve him in truth with all your heart. For consider, deliberately think, reflect, remember what great things he has done for you. A great verse. Lois said that's her life verse. Now we're going to look at it, but before we get to it, uh, in order to show respect for Scripture, we have to deal with it in context to make sure we're understanding it rightly. So we're going to look to a number of verses that have come before verse 24. First, let me tell you, this is written by Samuel. He's a prophet and a spiritual leader in Israel. And he uh, called for an assembly of the people to a place called Gilgal. Perhaps you've heard about it. This is Israel. And here is the Great Sea. That's the Mediterranean. And the northern district of Israel is Galilee. And over here is the uh, Sea of Galilee. Look how it's wider at the top than the bottom. It looks like a harp. And uh, that's kind of where it, it, it got its Hebrew name. It means harp, uh, the Sea of Galilee. It's, uh, it's uh, fresh water. Uh, it's a lake, but it takes on the conditions of a sea sometimes. And from it flows the Jordan River. Here it is. And the Jordan River empties here into the Dead Sea. This Jordan River is a natural boundary marker between Israel to the left and this would be Jordan on the right. So um, Gilgal is over here. Why is it significant? When Israel was liberated by God's grace from bondage in Egypt, she traveled a long way around for various reasons and was coming where the arrow indicates into the promised land right here near Gilgal. There was a problem, however. The Jordan River at that particular time of year was really flowing uh, heavily, was quite turbulent. And so men, women, and children couldn't cross the Jordan River. It was a big problem for Israel, but not for Israel's God. So just as he did with the Red Sea, he did here. He miraculously dried up the Jordan River so that the Israelites could cross over here from what was... Uh, then the land of Ammon or the Ammonites that crossed over the Jordan River and they encamped right here at Gilgal. Now that's the place where Samuel is bringing them back to and I'll tell you why in just a second. But first I want to tell you what happened when the Israelites were there. It's recorded in Joshua chapter 4. Uh, and... Um, the Israelites were told by God through um, uh, Joshua to collect 12 stones, uh, one for each of the tribes. And then Joshua took them and made kind of a memorial monument out of the 12 stones. And he put them there by the Jordan River near uh, 
Gilgal and said in Joshua 4, when your children ask their fathers in time to come, see, see he was thinking, uh, these uh, older Israelites had the experience of seeing the faithfulness of God in freeing them from Egypt and leading them through the wilderness. But the next generation, the children, wouldn't know about this. So it was the parents' and grandparents' responsibility to make sure that the kids were filled in. And this 12-stone monument would serve that teaching lesson purpose. So Joshua said, when your kids say, what are these stones for? You should uh, tell them it's because Israel crossed this Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan before you. That all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty. So that you may fear the Lord your God forever. So it was a teaching lesson that was to be performed. So uh, Samuel saw fit to call the people back to this historic place in their history, Gilgal. Why? So that they would remember, folks. That's why. Because Israel was drifting away from God. And Joshua wisely, uh, Samuel wisely decided to bring them back to this very memorable place in their redemptive history so that they would pause there at Gilgal and remember what the God who they are running from had done for them throughout their history. Well, we're like Israel. We have a tendency to, we share the same human nature, to forget God and to wander from him. And usually this happens when life gets tough. You think it would be the other way when we would really run to him, but that infrequently happens. What most typically happens is that we get distracted by uh, the throes of life, by the difficulties of life, and we start looking around for other sources of help. And we too would be wise to do what ancient Israel was encouraged to do. Stop. Pause. Take time to reflect on all that God had done for you in the past. Has he done so only to abandon you in the present? Anyway, that's what Samuel is doing here. And he's doing it for this reason. They had committed a horrific sin and he is about to uh, address it for them and here's what he does now in first Samuel chapter 12 verse 1 Samuel said to all Israel behold I've listened to your voice in all that you said to me and I've appointed a king over you that's the sin God was their king they said thank you God but no thank you we want a king, we want a governmental system like all the other nations. We want to be governed by a human king, not by you. And God told Samuel, give them what they require. Give them what they demand. But let them live with the consequences of their choices. So their sin was this. They were in a governmental form called a theocracy. That means God was their king. They said, we don't want it. We want a monarchy in which a man would be king. The first one was Saul. 
He got off to a good start, and then he proved his colors. He wasn't good at all. And so this was a terrible, terrible thing to reject Almighty God, who made, the, made this astounding offer. I will govern you. I will be your king. I've given you a constitution. It's called the Ten Commandments. I have freed you from bondage. I've redeemed you with a price. I've separated out a special piece of real estate called the promised land for you. You see all that he did, and yet somehow human sin nature has the capacity to uh, forget it and to say, no, we want to be like everybody else. We don't want God as our king. We want Saul. Bad. So Samuel proceeds to deal with this people, and here's what he does in verse um, 3. Uh, he starts to make a defense about his own character first. I'll tell you why in a second. But here's his defense. Here I am. Bear witness against me. He lets them be his jury. You check me out. Evaluate my character. Uh, bear witness against me before the Lord, and his anointed, whose ox have I taken? Whose donkey have I taken? Or whom have I defrauded? Whom have I oppressed? Or from whose hand have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes with it? I'll restore it to you. He puts himself on the stand. He says, examine me. See my character. Three times it, he asks the question, have I taken, have I taken, have I taken? The answer is, no, Samuel, you've taken nothing. You've been a giver, not a taker. You've served us. You haven't exploited us. And in fact, that's kind of the verdict they render, as you can see in the next verse, verse 4. And they said, you, you have not defrauded us or oppressed us or taken anything from any man's hand. Why did Samuel construct this scenario? It's because now uh, the one who has been uh, uh, declared innocent is going to turn the tables. The defendant is going to become the prosecuting attorney. That's what he does. And so he begins in verse 7 and says, So now take your stand that I may plead with you before the Lord, concerning all the righteous acts of the Lord, which he did for you and your fathers. He has defended not only his own character before this wayward people, but even, and more importantly, the character of God. And the next few verses, which I'm kind of skipping, are ones in which Samuel kind of points out a pattern in Israel's history, which I'd like to share with you. I think it's this. First, Israel experienced crisis, uh, usually as a result of their own sin. Uh, and then this happens next. Then Israel repents, which means to change their direction. Now they turn from idols and who knows what, and they turn back to God. Crisis motivates them to confess and repent. That's what they do. And the third thing that happens throughout Israel history is this. God, by grace and mercy, delivers them, usually through a leader whom he uses as his instrument of salvation. This is the order of things. You can see it. You see it really noticeably in the book of Judges, which we went through 
I don't know, a few years ago, something like that. But this is the pattern. But the pattern is interrupted now. Why? At this particular time that we're reading about in Israel's history, Israel doesn't follow this pattern. You see, instead of, in crisis, repenting and turning to God as king, she refuses. And instead, this is what she does in verse 12. When you saw that Nahash, the king of the sons of Ammon, came against you, you said to me, no, no, but a king shall reign over us, although the Lord your God was your king. So in the midst of impending crisis, um, which Israel took his motivation to turn to repent and turn to God. She doesn't. Now she says, no, uh, Ammon is coming against us. The Ammonites are going to try to besiege us, but we don't want God. No, we want a king to defend us. That's what, that's what she does here. This is a serious sin. And yet in the midst of this very serious sin, please notice how God, who is gracious beyond our sin, offers even to Israel an opportunity to repent. So here's verse 17. Is it not, Samuel is speaking, he asks Israel, is it not the wheat harvest today? Folks, the wheat harvest in Israel takes place in May and June. May and June. He said, is it not the wheat harvest today? I'm going to call to the Lord, he says. I'm going to pray. And I'm going to ask him to send thunder and rain. Hmm. Then you will know and see that your wickedness is great. Which you have done in the sight of the Lord by asking for yourselves a king. So if you read this too quickly, you ask the question, I don't get it. What's so striking about thunder and rain. How would that motivate the people finally to repent and turn back to God? Well, folks, in May and June in Israel, there's almost no possibility of rain. That's why those are good months, except for the heat, uh, to visit Israel. It isn't the rainy season at all. Samuel knows this. He's living there. Therefore, he's going to call upon God to do that which is not natural. It is supernatural. If there is the appearance of thunder and rain during the wheat harvest, May and June, it would get the people's attention. They're all agricultural folks. They're farmers. They know when the rain comes and when it doesn't. And if it's coming when it shouldn't come, they would be forced to say, oh, it's God our creator, whom we have rejected. And Samuel knew this may be an incentive for them to recognize, confess, uh, and repent. And so that's kind of what's happening here. And it's working. I'll show you the next verse here, verse 20 of the chapter. Samuel said to the people, do not fear, which implies that's what they were doing. When they saw the thunder and rain, they began to fear God. So now they're no longer uh, rejecting him, nor are they indifferent to his presence. Now they're recognizing his presence, but perhaps not in the right way. They're fearing God, but probably not in the right sense. Because Samuel says, stop what you're doing. Don't fear. Uh, perhaps you're aware of this. Uh, that commandment 
is the most oft-repeated commandment in the entire Bible. Don't fear. Don't be afraid. So that tells us something about us, does it not? We're prone to do so. This says, do not fear. And then if that's all you read, you, you know, if you're Israel, you say, okay, no fear. It must mean that God is not taking into account my sin. Oh, I got it. My sin maybe is not as sinful as I thought it would be. No, no, no. Samuel, in anticipation, says quickly after do not fear, you have committed all this evil. Yet, don't turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. Folks, that's grace. Uh, hot on the heels of the most horrific sin, blatant rejection of a holy God, here is the opportunity for them to repent, to return uh, to him. Now, here's something I've been thinking about. I really don't think our sin is much of a problem for God. I think he has a solution to it. It's called the cross on which Jesus died. So our, uh, our sin is not the problem. I think the big problem is how we respond to our sin when we commit it. <clears throat> Typically, even for us Christians, when we sin, sometimes we say to ourselves, I might as well keep sinning. I've already crossed the line. I've already... Uh, tasted what I shouldn't have tasted, watched what I shouldn't have watched, touched what I shouldn't have watched. I'm already on the outs with God. Let me therefore sin all the more. That is one not good response to sin. Here's a second. It's to minimize the sin by simply relabeling it a mistake. That's another way even we Christians respond to it. Yeah, what I did was not exactly right in God's eyes, but it's not a sin, it's a mistake. And here's a third human response to sin that we are prone to, it seems to me. We redefine the sinful behavior as not being sinful at all, and we are seeing a lot of this today, particularly with the new generation. I don't want to be too general in this, but it's concerned for me. Every survey uh, seems to indicate to us uh, that even younger folks who count themselves um, uh, as born-again believers wonder if the things we believe to be blatantly wrong are really that wrong. And they're really succumbing, I think, to the influence not so much of the Bible, but as much as uh, social media. So uh, today you see a lot of folks say, yeah, I'm living with so-and-so and I'm not married, but we're not promiscuous. We have some measure of affection for one another. No, 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 we're not ready for the commitment of marriage. <laughs> Just, we help each other. It's economically feasible for us to live. You know, two can live more cheaply than one. You get a lot of this kind of thing today. See, that's the wrong response to what the Bible defines as sin. Now, God has a response to sin. I hope we don't take it lightly. It's this. It's grace and it's mercy to the repentant sinner. 
There's no need for us to opt for one of these previous three options when we can come before God and say, Oh, God, I sinned. I cannot blame it on my mother or my father or my background or the fact that everyone's doing it. Oh, God, I did it because the same rebellious spirit that was in ancient Israel is in me. I deliberately chose to rebel against you. I didn't make a mistake. I planned to sin. Oh, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And God's response is, mercy there shall be. There's no need to opt for any other response to sin. So, folks, our sin, it seems to me, is less a problem than refusing God's grace and mercy when we sin. That's a bigger problem. That's called pride. And if we refuse God's grace and mercy, in other words, if we turn from God, then what do we do? Uh, so here's what it says in verse 21. And you must not turn aside. Here's what happens if you do. For then you would go after futile, empty things which cannot profit or deliver because that's their character. They're futile. They're empty. So here's what happens. I'm speaking to Christians even. If we Christians sin against um, our Father and refuse his grace and mercy through sincere confession and repentance, we still have normal human needs, emotional and otherwise. Therefore, we're going to seek to have them met by going after futile things. You've done it. I've done it. Samuel, under inspiration, understands this, and that's why he calls us to quick confession and repentance. Otherwise, you're going to find God's substitutes to meet your needs. You're going to have your invalid, your valid needs met invalidly. Why don't you just repent, come back to God? His grace is greater than all your sin. So that's the warning here given in that verse and um, could I tell you this but don't misunderstand I don't even think guilt is the is the right response to sin when you and I commit it why but I don't think guilt is necessary let let me let, let me try to prove my point do you remember David and Bathsheba he uh, he planned this he had relations with her she was another man's wife she became pregnant. Then he came out with a plan to have her husband murdered in the course of battle. Uriah was his name, and he died. So David committed um, the sexual sin and, and then uh, murder. <clears throat> he becomes convicted of his sin, and what, is, what does he do? Let me take you back to Psalm 32, verse 5. He said, I acknowledged my sin to you, to God. And my iniquity, that's another word for sin, I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the what? The guilt of my sin. That's why I would recommend that you don't hold on to the guilt of your sin longer than it takes for you to confess it and repent. Otherwise, you're exacting a penalty on you for your wrongdoing that frankly does not impress God. Isn't the penalty uh, 
born by the Son of God, isn't it enough? Did Jesus not suffer enough? Do we need to stay in a state of guilt longer in order to add to his sufferings? Why don't we do what David did? I acknowledged, I confessed, you forgave the guilt of my sin. Now let me, it's going to look like I'm departing from the text a little bit, but I'm not. I just want to illustrate this. So uh, some time ago, I worked here in Houston in the medical center in a hospital that had a Christ-centered treatment program for people struggling emotionally and also with addictions. And I worked on the drug and alcohol end because that was my background and I, I had a, a connection with those who were struggling. And we knew as we ministered and helped those struggling with substance abuse issues, we knew that many upon discharge would relapse. We knew. Therefore, in anticipation of it, we did what we called relapse prevention to try to minimize the probability that they would, they would in fact relapse. And so we would um, acquaint them with things like, like this. So here, I'll use my pointer again, but this time I'll go to this side so that you can't tell whether I lean to the right or the left. I'm trying to be neutral. Let me explain to you. Uh, an emotional trigger can be things like anger, uh, loneliness, anything like that. An emotional trigger almost always precedes a craving for uh, drugs or alcohol. Remember, this, these are people who are, who are addicted to these substances. So we would teach them this. Recognize the emotional triggers because they're going to inevitably increase the, tem- the, te- the cravings. And then you engage in the same ritualistic behaviors that you've done in order to satisfy the craving whether it means ride down the same street where you can buy some cocaine or something like that. And then after the ritual accomplishes its objective, the uh, person starts using again. And when the person starts using again, they inevitably feel guilt again. And the guilt is an emotional trigger again, which drives the craving, the ritual, the using, and the guilt. This is called an addiction cycle. So we came up with an approach. We got to disrupt the cycle. So we decided to attack this, guilt. And we decided to help people find Jesus Christ as the sin and guilt bearer. And then when they got into this stuff, we could say, he forgave the guilt of your sin. We could say, you relapsed. Yes, you did. Call it what it is. Instead of depending on God, you made recourse to false gods. And the false gods are beating you to death now with guilt. Why don't you just say, oh God, I have sinned. Help me not to. Please strengthen me. Thank you for forgiving the guilt of my sin. And we found better results. Addicts do this without even knowing it. They're looking for a way to justify their self-destructive behavior so they... Invite guilt. Do you do it? Everybody does it. 
We're looking for an opportunity to go astray. And therefore, when we commit sin, we let the atmosphere of guilt just sort of thrive in us because guilty uh, defective people don't deserve good stuff. I'm just going to sin all the more. Why don't you just stop and say, I sinned, oh God, because I'm a sinner. But I'm the very one for whom Jesus died. Why don't you think about what he endured? The whipping, the mockery, the abuse, all the rest. Then why don't you say, oh, Lord Jesus, thank you for forgiving me. Strengthen me, would you please, so that I don't do this again. Now, why do I bring that up? I don't know that many of you are drug and alcohol addicts, but what's the difference? We do the same thing. The same. That's why I'm emphasizing the point. No, no, I'm not emphasizing. Samuel is. Don't turn aside. Run to Jesus. Confess your sin. Call it what it is, because if you don't do it, You're going to go after futile things, whether it's drugs or alcohol or some sexual thing or who knows what. You're going to go after futile things. They can't profit or deliver because they're futile. Run to Jesus. Confess the sin. So that's kind of what's going on there. Now, when sin is confessed and God is turned to, he forgives. He won't reject his kids. So look at verse 22. For the Lord will not abandon his people. Uh, You don't have to answer to me, but let me give you a chance to answer. Are you one of his people? If so, this that I'm reading is true of you. The Lord will not abandon his people. Now, why won't he do it? Look carefully at the text. On account of his great name, you have nothing to do with it. Because the Lord has been pleased to make you a people for himself. If you're a Christian, there are two reasons that emerge from this text. Why, in spite of your sin or mine, God will not abandon us. Here it is. One is his great name. That doesn't mean a specific magical name. It means his character. He's a God of all grace. He's a long-suffering God. He's the God of all mercy. Because of his great name, he won't abandon you. It's not your merits. It's not your vows and promises. It's not your victory over sin. If you're one of his kids, he will not reject you on account of his great name. His reputation depends on it. If he promised you, I'll never leave you or forsake you, and then he does, that casts aspersions on his great name. So the very thing that keeps you from God could be a a very low estimation of who you are. And you're right. You're a skunk. So am I. This idea of believing yourself is just nonsense. You stink. So do I. We sin in every aspect of our being. You don't look to some virtue in your life as a bargaining point with God. You say, oh God, thank you then on account of your great name. In spite of what I'm made of. You'll never abandon me. I've come to you through Jesus, your only begotten son. That's the first reason why he won't abandon us. The second is his great love. It says right there, because the Lord, I got to read this a few times, has been pleased. Are you kidding? To make you a people, put your name in there. For the Lord has been pleased to, just privately insert your name, to make you a person for himself. There are many times you can't even stand you. 
But God says, I'm pleased with you. No, I didn't say he's pleased with our behaviors. I didn't say that. I mean, it is a true free will adoption into the family of Almighty God. A father who will not let us go. Those are the two reasons why in spite of our sin, God will never abandon us. So, folks, get this. By grace alone do we become God's people. And by grace alone do we remain God's people. It's the same thing. And now I feel like apologizing to Lois because after all of this, we're finally getting to her verse. Lois, this is for you. 1 Samuel chapter 12, verse 24. Only fear the Lord. Serve him in truth with all your heart for consider what great things he has done for you. Now you get an idea of the context. It's Israel's sin and repentance. And yet she would be prone to think it's over between me and God in light of the sin I committed. And in light of everything that's been said, Samuel says, no. Stop all that crazy guilt, introspection, nonsense, guilt stuff. Only fear the Lord. Respect him. Not the fear of a slave, the respect of a son or a daughter. Give that to God and serve him. You think you're disqualified from serving him. No, no. Keep fearing him. Keep serving him why are you disqualifying yourself when he says I'll never abandon you I've been pleased to make you my son or daughter and then this well so I'll emphasize these things a fear the Lord again that's the respect of a child not the fear of a slave and consider what great things he's done for you so here we'll end with this folks uh, this is what Samuel did. As I mentioned at the beginning, he calls the people back to Gilgal. It's the Mount of Remembrance. And all he wants them to do is remember what God has done for them. And which begs the question, if God made this investment in your lives and did all this, has he done it only to abandon you now? Well, the answer is, of course not. Now, folks, I think it wouldn't hurt us to keep in mind this a strategy when we're in the same situation. We've sinned because we've chosen to. We're moved, maybe not by thunder and rain, but something maybe as powerful moves us back to God. We confess our sin and repent, but we think we have to punish ourselves just a little bit more because what Jesus endured is not enough. So we, uh, we uh, encourage guilt in our lives a little bit more. We disqualify ourselves from service because we think we are no longer uh, eligible, that kind of thing. A good thing to do at that time is to just stop and to deliberately think about what God had done for you in the past. Here's one thing. I don't know your personal lives. You don't know mine. But here's one thing I do know about everyone here who's a Christian. I know what Jesus has done for us in the past. Jesus died for us. That's the past. Yeah, glory, brother. You're so right. Jesus died for us. Now, if he did that in the past... That means it was previous to all of my sins. And yet, he still died. In fact, he said, Father, forgive 
steward who 2,000 years later is clueless, doesn't know what he's doing. When he rejects me, turns his back on me, disrespects me, diminishes me, and chooses stuff in the world instead of me. Father, forgive Stuart. Stuart doesn't disappoint me because disappointment is when you have an expectation of somebody and they let you down. But the all-knowing Jesus didn't expect too much from us. He's not let down because he had the right expectation. He knew we're going to sin because we're sinners. We didn't disappoint him one darn bit. Now, we may disappoint one another because in our pride, we think we're better than that. No, we're not. We stink. We're sinners. But Jesus knows that. In the past, Jesus died for me. So what, I, what I'm going to do based on, on this text, I'm going I'm to call upon this, and I'm going to remember uh, what Jesus did to redeem me. I'm going to think about the events that led up to the cross. I'm going to think about the events on the cross. I'm going to think about what happened after the cross. Um, burial. Um, resurrection. Ascension. I'm going to think about all that. I'm going to go back to my own Gilgal, so to speak. I'm going to run to Jesus. And I'm going to say, oh, God, I'm not going to argue out of your love, mercy, and grace. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to get back involved in this cycle of sin. I'm going to attack the emotional distress of the guilt of my sin by putting it under the blood of Jesus. Your shed blood, which happened in the past. What can wash away my sin? What's the answer? See, so I'm going to go back to the time when the blood of Jesus was shed. And I'm going to leave that session with God. With my head up. My shoulders back. And I'm going to say I and the, and, and the Father are still one. And I'm just going to be puffed up. Not in pride. Just in joy. He's been pleased. He knows my sin. Yet he's been pleased. To make me one of his own. So I got that from this chapter. Thank you, Miss Lois, for bringing this to our uh, attention. What a wonderful, wonderful life verse. It's not just for Miss Lois. It's for everybody here, too. Lord Jesus, in the past, you died for us. In the present, you lived to make intercession for us. And in the future, you're coming to get us. We're in good shape. Even when we're in bad shape. As long as we don't run from you. Go after futile things which cannot profit or deliver. At our worst, Lord Jesus, we just have to confess it. You are at your best. These foolish human responses to sin get us nowhere. Help us to bask in the reality of your response to sin. I will forgive it. Confess it. Repent. Call it what it is. By the blood of my only begotten son to your sin, you will be cleansed. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your investment in our life. Thank you for helping us to understand you as we see how you have related to ancient Israel. As with them, so too with us. We're grateful, Lord Jesus, for all that you've done, are doing, and will do. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.